we are excited to be able to close with such a thought-provoking paper. Uh, before we begin, I will make introductions. So I'm Ruth Mason. I'm the Edward S. Cohen Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, and I'm an affiliated uh, member of the Virginia Center for Tax Law. My co-convener for this workshop series is Silly Dagan, known to all of you. Uh, Tilly is, a, is professor of taxation law at Oxford University and one of the directors of the MSc in taxation at Oxford University Faculty of Law. By now, everyone knows our format. Silly uh, and I invite tax academics that we admire to choose a work by a non-tax academic that they admire. Then we invite the author of the work to discuss it uh, with us here on Zoom. So today, our commentator is Anne Allstott, uh, the uh, Jacqueline D. Biederman, uh, Biederman, Professor of Taxation at Yale Law School. She previously held appointments at Harvard and Columbia, and she's the author of several books, some co-authored, including The Public Option, A New Deal for Old Age, and Taxation in Six Concepts. She's also the author of No Exit, What Parents Owe Children, What Society Owes Parents, and The Stakeholder Society. Uh, given Anne's scholarship, and in particular, I'm thinking of her writing on feminism and tax policy, it's perhaps no surprise that she chose to comment on the article for today that was co-authored by her Yale uh, colleague, Amy Kepchinski. Um, so the work for today is building a law and political economy framework beyond the 20th, 20th century synthesis. It's co-authored by Jedediah Britton uh, Purdy, Jay Grewal, Amy, and Sabeel Rahman. So we're really pleased to have Amy with us here today as well. Uh, in addition to being a professor at Yale Law School uh, with Anne, uh, Amy is a faculty co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and faculty co-director of the Collaboration for Research Integrity and Transparency. Most relevant for us today, Amy is also faculty co-director of the Law and Political Economy Project and co-founder of the Law and Political Economy blog. Her areas of research include information policy, intellectual property law, international law, and global health. Uh, welcome, Anne and Amy. Um, now, before we uh, jump into the paper, I just want to note the format. Anne is going to comment, Amy will respond, and then Silly uh, and I will make some remarks before opening the conversation up if you want to be in the queue please use the raise hand function in your browser. Just click participants and then raise hand. Okay, so Anne. All right, thank you. Thank you so much, Ruth and Silly for convening us. Um, what a wonderful idea. And I have to tell you, I just really like the spirit of what you're doing. It's, it's critical and constructive. Um, and uh, I really like it. And I want to thank everybody who's here. There are people, uh, I understand, on five continents, which is amazing. We have to get to six and seven. Do I remember correctly? <laughs> I had, I've kind of forgotten my, my elementary school social studies, but I think there are seven continents. You'll, you'll correct me. But thank you all for being here. It's really lovely. And I see uh, many people uh, that I know and whose work I know. And uh, I'm just delighted that you're here. So. Um, 
here's what I want to do. I want to uh, do three things. First is to explain why I suggested this article uh, and why I admire it. The second is to, uh, uh, and, the, and the, so that's the first thing. And then the second two things really, I want to examine the two elements of what uh, Amy and her co-authors call the 20th century synthesis. And I want to examine them with reference to our field, tax scholarship, tax policy. And so uh, uh, I'll talk about the abdication of constitutional authority over economic life and about the uses and abuses of economics, um, both of which have a lot of salience in tax. So let me start with why I suggested the article. Um, this is, again, Ruth's and Silly's idea is so, so important, I think. Um, I, I, I'm, I am one of the older people here, and uh, it, it has only gotten more difficult over the 30 years I've been in this profession to keep up not only with scholarship in our field, but with scholarship in other fields. It's just, you know, uh, uh, we could talk about technology and other things, but it's, it's become very difficult. And so um, they have... Uh, uh, oriented us very nicely, I think, to the really important continuing task of not being isolated, um, of not just being siloed, of really keeping in touch. And, and luckily, we have this article from uh, Amy and David and Jed and Sabeel uh, that helps us do that, because it, it's um, uh, uh, kind of a rare piece in legal scholarship that I feel like almost everybody, whatever their field is, could read and benefit from. So. Um, uh, I want to suggest, so, so I have mixed feelings about, about invoking this, but I'm going to invoke it. Uh, many of you will know the uh, David Foster Wallace uh, little anecdote about water, right? Just in case you don't, this is from a 2005 Kenyon College uh, uh, graduation speech. In case you don't know it, it just was, was resonating in my head as I was thinking about this piece. So the, so the little anecdote, the little metaphor is there are two fish and the two fish are swimming along together, right? Um, and then there's another fish swimming the other way. I know you need the hand gestures. That's why I'm, that's why I'm providing these artful hand gestures. Um, uh, and so the two fish are swimming along and the other fish uh, kind of crosses their path and says, hey guys, how's the water? And they're kind of like, ha -ha, ha -ha. and then when he's gone, the water questioner, they, uh, the other two look at each other and say, what's water? Right. And so um, David Foster Wallace structures his speech around this and, and his speech really goes to things like being kind, getting out of your own head, really thinking hard about what other people might be going through and the structure of society, all that stuff. But for me, it actually captured, I think the reason it was in my head was that it captured what I think the big contribution of this paper is, at least for me. And that is that we, we do our scholarship and we're swimming along in the water and we are, um, I don't know, I'm, this metaphor is gonna break down really fast, but we're catching little fish, you know, and we don't really think about the water. And this piece made me think about the water. It made me think about con law in a way that I generally don't, and we'll talk about why. Um, and it made me talk, uh, think about law and economics in some ways that I do think about, but in other ways that I don't. Um, before I um, uh, go on uh, and talk uh, uh, about the two elements of the 20th century synthesis, I just want to say that this is such a rich paper that I'm just going to scratch the surface. So I know a lot of you will have great things to say um, and questions and other things. It's so nice of Amy to spend her time to be here with us. Um, but I wanted to do a little uh, shout out to a paper uh, by Jeremy Bearer Friend, 
Ari Glogauer, Ariel Kleiman, and Clint Wallace. I wanted to get all of those names right. Uh, they have a paper in draft that Ariel nicely sent to me uh, that is a, a very thorough examination of what uh, law and political economy might offer to tax and what tax might offer to LPE. So I just thought that was a really great engagement. I'm, I'm not uh, uh, generally kind of repeating their points or, or drawing on that, but they have you know even more, even more to say. So um, I thought I'd stay kind of broad brush and uh, 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 it looks like Jeremy's here, Clint is here, I don't know if Ariel's here, uh, but anyway, that is um, uh, uh, a great piece. All right, so so that was thing one. Thing one was why did I choose this piece? Thing two is I want to talk a little bit about the first element of the 20th century synthesis. And I know that everybody's read the paper, so I'm just diving in. I'm not summarizing the paper at all. But the first element you'll recall of the 20th century synthesis is the abdication of constitutional authority over what I'm calling economic life. Um, uh, and so um, I have to start here with a confession, right? And my confession is that as old as I am, and I've been teaching tax for 29 years, um, I had given little or no thought to US constitutional law. You know, in my scholarship, I had read other people's papers and I have friends that, you know, I have friends that do con law, right? You know, and I read their papers and blah, blah, blah. But I had given little or no thought to US constitutional law in my own work until five years ago. Um, uh, and for me, the absence of con law, which is what Amy uh, and her co-authors are talking about, the absence of con law for me was the water. I just didn't think of it. And when I did think of it, I thought, thank God, honestly, I thought, thank God that I don't have to do what the con law people do, which is to endlessly pour over the words of these cases written by nine lawyers and and read the tea leaves of what this one's personality and age and commitments and you know I just didn't want to have to do that um, and even at the at the level of theory you know I like theory but constitutional theory often strikes me I'm just going to be I'm just going to say it as kind of bodlerized because they are stuck with constitutional doctrine right so I felt like tax was in a way a purer better field because we just go right to political theory you want to talk about equality let's talk about equality we don't have to talk about the supreme court's reading of the 14th amendment we just talk about equality you want to talk about social welfare let's talk about it um and so I felt actually grateful that tax is this kind of really wide open field where you can um where you're not constrained by the constitution um, I'm not saying this is a great attitude. I'm saying it was my attitude um, and wasn't challenged. Um, I, uh, I didn't challenge myself until until relatively recently. Um, and actually, it was only my engagement with family law that made me do that, because family law is a field where con law is very, very important. And it was my engagement with family law that led me to see, wow, this is really weird. Where does the Constitution apply? Where doesn't it? You know, uh, and of course, the students always ask, right? The students are all all, um, uh, you know, sort of bright eyed and constitutional and they want to say, couldn't we litigate under the 14th Amendment to, to and were you like, no, 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 you can't. And so um, this article really invites us to look at and take a hard look at the court's abdication of uh, constitutional authority over economic matters. And so that's true in tax. I think it's largely true in corporate law. It's mostly true in social welfare policy, which is um, another field where I work. Um, 
you know, the Supreme Court has chosen to interpret our Constitution uh, uh, to have little or no role in promoting economic equality and post Lochner, arguably little or no role really even in establishing negative uh, economic rights. It's really just very seldom a constraint. Um, uh, and that's because of, you know, rational basis review. So could a tax law fail rational basis review? I suppose it could, you know, um, uh, but uh, we don't normally think about that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm writing a tax policy piece, I just go right from whatever theory I want to use and defend to whatever proposals I want to defend. And, you know, unless it's something where there's clearly a constitutional issue like wealth taxation, I don't even think about it. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the article, though, suggests that my attitude of kind of taking the water for granted um, may really not be a, a good thing, because the authors argue that the court's abdication, and here I'm quoting, encased economic and other structural forms of inequality from answerability to the principle of equality. And that's absolutely true at the constitutional level. I just said it, right? Rational basis review, um, uh, you're, 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 there's not going to be an opportunity for constitutional review of equality in taxation. And then uh, the, the article goes on. I'm going to quote just one more time. I don't generally quote, but I just thought these quotes were so good. The courts produced and scholarship adapted to a denuded and distorted version of liberalism, one unable to demand or defend the institutional arrangements necessary for robust uh, conceptions of liberty or equality. And that, I think, is really important, too, because it explains again, kind of my, my attitude of superiority that I began with, um, that uh, the court having adopted these very watered, arguably very watered down ideas of liberty and equality, then kind of just, you know, operates in a very small space. And so that's why the realm of constitutional law often seemed to me and seems to me to be debating very, very limited questions, you know, um, what is liberty, what is equality, but only in small ways. Whereas again, in tax, I feel like we have this, this robust connection to theories of distributive justice that really offer us much bigger and much more challenging mandates around equality uh, uh, and around um, things like equality of opportunity, right? Um, in, in a very rich sense, not just jobs open to talents, but, you know, a very rich Rawlsian or uh, more robust conception. So, um, so what are the implications for tax scholarship? So as I was thinking about it, I mean, you guys may have more, I'm sure you'll have more, but it, it struck me a couple of implications. One is, um, I think tax law might have something to offer as we engage with the question of whether the court's abdication is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, I'm pretty persuaded by Amy's and her co-authors idea that the court's abdication has insulated um, uh, tax legislation, let's say, or economic legislation from constitutional review. That's just clearly true. Right. There is just rarely, if ever, a hook to examine, say, the 2017 uh, uh, tax legislation and uh, have it subject to any kind of higher level scrutiny uh, by a court. So that's just clearly true. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
So the one result, and, and, and I think we can contribute here because we're sort of the experts, experts in what it feels like to operate in a field where there aren't these constitutional constraints. What happens to equality? What happens to distribution? What happens uh, to liberty, richer conceptions of positive liberty, um, when you throw a field open to ordinary politics? Because that's the, that's the water we swim in. The water we swim in is very much the water of ordinary politics. Tax legislation will come and go. It's highly sensitive to um, political changes. And so an open question, I think, um, is whether or not the kind of constitutional review um, uh, that might be extended to taxation would on net be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and, you know, in ideal theory, it would be pretty much a good thing, I think, right? In ideal theory, if you had, you know, a reliable Supreme Court that uh, was going to thoughtfully apply rich notions of liberty and equality, that's, that sounds pretty good, right? And it would, it would do what constitutional law does, which is to put a frame around or boundaries around ordinary politics. On the other hand, there's our Supreme Court as it exists, and there are the the uh, precisely the denuded and and uh, watered down conceptions of liberty and equality that Amy and her co-authors mentioned. And so the bad scenario would be that we essentially get Lochner type review. Um, and we're told that we can't have, I don't know, progressive income tax rates because that violates equality. Or we're told that uh, we can't have tax rates higher than X because that violates liberty. You can imagine uh, a, a kind of strong libertarian. I mean, in, in the court's work doesn't even qualify as principled libertarianism, right? It's, it's less than that. Um, and so are we eager to jump into that water or are we not? What are the, what are the, and, and I think it's a serious question that we might be able to answer, what are the institutions in tax that, uh, if any, that preserve commitments to equality, that preserve commitments to liberty, even as politics changes? Um, and so that strikes me as a very interesting set of um, agendas. Um, and I said, there were several implications, but that was the only one I wrote down. So I'm going to stop there. Forget the several. There was That was the implication. We'll go with that. <clears throat> All right. So that was thing two, thinking about um, uh, the, ab the constitutional abdication that the authors talk about. Thing three, and my, my third thing, uh, is the uses and abuses of economics. So tax, I think, is um, such an interesting field because although it's been heavily, see, colonized is not a good word, um, uh, although it's been heavily I don't want to say occupied. Why are only bad uh, words coming to me, right? Uh, it's, it's been heavily infused uh, with law and economics. Um, it, it, it is not a field that is, I would say, completely occupied by either. Um, uh, there's still plenty of room for political theory. Maybe I say that because that's what I do, you know, political theories that are non-utilitarian, but I see it in, in other people's work as well. There are plenty of people working in non-utilitarian political theory and bringing that into tax. Um, uh, and so we, it, it, it means that there's a certain tension around the use of law, right? So I'm, I'm just looking down the line here. I'm seeing Ted and I'm seeing Linda and I'm seeing, you know, lots and lots of people um, uh, who are doing the same thing. And so it's an interesting field because I would say, you guys can correct me if you think I'm wrong, I feel like we're all conversant 
with public economics. That it's just, if you wanna read the papers in the field, you wanna uh, be capable of, you, of uh, consulting empirical work from economics or, or uh, theoretical work from economics, that it's something that, that it's like a baseline competence for us, but it's not necessarily, it's not like corporate law where it's, it's very hard to do anything else. Right. Um, so so that's what I'm trying to say. Now, the article criticizes the use of law and economics, not in tax. Tax is not one of their examples. And that's fine because that opens it up for us. Right. But the article criticizes the use of law and economics in um, several ways. And some of these critiques, I think, don't just don't hit for us because we draw on public economics and not private law and economics. So um, uh, one critique, which is an important one, it's very important in other fields, but I don't think it's important for us, is um, the use of wealth maximization and ability to pay and transaction costs. So those are features of law and economics that in American law schools are used in lots of fields. Environmental law, they give an example, intellectual property, and so on. Those actually are not concepts that we use. Um, because we draw on public economics, we make moves that I think private economics just don't make. We, at least in principle, um, deal with utility, not money. Uh, and we at least in print and that and that that gets us out of the whole wealth maximization ability to pay thing. Um, and uh, in principle, we make interpersonal comparisons of utility, right? Like one of the most basic things we teach is um, uh, that progressive tax rates can be justified on, uh, uh, if you think about the declining marginal utility of money, and that involves an interpersonal utility comparison, right? Um, and so that's just a thing we do. Um, uh, another thing we do is that, Coming from welfare economics, we look to a social welfare function, right? We, we, we acknowledge that there are many different efficient markets that could exist, right? There's a kind of Pareto frontier beyond which you can't get more efficient, but the Pareto frontier itself doesn't solve uh, uh, any problem until you import a social welfare function. And so we're comfortable with that as well. The idea that um, maybe the social welfare function maximizes total utility. Again, we're comparing interpersonal utilities there, at least in principle. Um, and then we're, we're depending on what the social welfare function is, we are choosing a point on the Pareto frontier. So that um, nevertheless, I, I do think that um, their critique about efficiency should give us some pause because, uh, and here I think it's because we sometimes adopt shorthands, right? Like any field, when you talk to other people in the field, you're going to adopt shorthands because you don't need to be lecturing to each other about common premises, right? So we all know in principle a few things, but we sometimes forget them. And I felt like this article reminded me of uh, that piece of the piece of the water, that element of the water, that uh, part of the chemical composition of the water that we swim in. And here's what I mean by that. We all know, uh, thanks to this basic competence in public economics, that even working within the utilitarian framework of public economics, efficiency is a very weak criterion for policy. We know this, right? It's a weak criterion for policy because of what I just said. Efficiency will tell you if you're within the Pareto frontier how to move toward it, but it does not standing alone tell you anything about where on the Pareto frontier you wanna be. And in particular, we also know that uh, the efficiency criterion doesn't deal with questions of distribution. And we know that questions of distribution 
in a utilitarian framework can be just as important, if not more important than questions of efficiency. In other words, the utility gain that the society might get from say a really massive structural redistribution might swamp a little tiny efficiency gain by being a little more neutral along some margin. We know this, right? And if you read the canonical sources, you know, Lewis Kaplow's book on the theory of taxation and public finance, he's extremely clear about this, right? And so that's just one example of, you know, if you pick up any textbook on public economics, we know this. And yet, and yet on a day-to-day -day basis, we sometimes will debate efficiency. Um, I, and I'm thinking here of a debate that's been around longer than I've been around, and that is way longer than I've been around, and that is the consumption tax income tax debate, right? We constantly are debating um, efficiency. And I'm not saying that that's not important. It is important. It's a component of tax policy. But to treat, to, but to conclude, hey, this tax is more efficient than another tax, and to, to you know, that should, that should only be a small piece of a uh, uh, an outcome. And I feel like sometimes efficiency is so comfortable and it's so it's it's so tractable, right, in a way that these big questions of distribution are not. That we certainly see our colleagues from economics departments often kind of, uh, and again, bad words are coming to me, trafficking. Why am I coming up with bad words? But, but, but working in the vein of uh, efficiency because it's tractable. It's mathematically modelable, um, uh, and you can do these little partial equi equilibrium things. You can look at one market. And so again, how many papers have we all read that talk about neutrality along the decisional margin of present and future consumption? We've all read lots and lots of papers, and they're good papers, and they're important papers. But we need to be able to back off from that and realize that that's really potentially a very, very tiny component of a socially just society, right? I mean, we would need numbers to know, but absent some kind of uh, bigger structural redistribution, it could be that neutrality along that margin is as insignificant as, I'm gonna pick up my iced tea again. I, I guess I'm big on visual aids today, but you know, uh, this is peach oolong tea, right? I mean, maybe that, maybe the decisional margin between peach oolong and unsweetened tea is as socially important or un unimportant as the present consumption, future consumption margin. I don't know that to be true. It sounds kind of silly really. Um, and yet, why is it that without evidence, we treat one of those margins as incredibly uh, important. And we often treat that margin of neutrality. This is one of the, the points that Amy and her co-authors make. We treat that, that idea of neutrality as itself self-evidently important without taking into account. And still, I, I haven't even gotten out of, out of economics yet, right? I mean, like I'm still working within public economics. Why is it um, that we don't uh, systematically consider the back background distribution? Why is it that we don't systematically consider externalities and other, again, working in canonical uh, public economics, things that we ought to consider before we say, oh, here's an efficiency problem and it's really important. So I know lots of us in this room and outside this room know all these points. And, and in a lot of the work of the people here and, and people outside, we are all kind of uh, resisting this, this current in the water. Um, and yet I wanna say I'm as guilty as anybody, right? So I'm a co-author on a textbook and it, it, it talks about uh, uh, equity, efficiency and uh, uh, administrability as if those are separate things.
to be weighed one against the other, right? I teach my students uh, about efficiency and taxation as a, as a freestanding value. Um, uh, and, I, and I tell them, I explain, I give them the intuition around efficiency with reference to neutrality. And I give them an example like present or future consumption or even, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers or something like that. And so they, you know, in the way there's a, there's a line in Amy uh, and her co-author's piece where it's like law and economics got hold. And I think they're quite right about this because once you understand the framework, it's relatively simple and you can run with it. And I feel like efficiency talk in tax has that element as well. It's why I teach it in, you know, fed tax, because you can run with it. You could say something about it. And yet I think that those shorthands can be quite dangerous. All right. So I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to stop. Uh, but, uh, but just by way of conclusion, I do think, think that the LPE framework is an important one. I'm so grateful to Amy and Jed and Sabil uh, and David for the work that they're doing. This is a ton of work. And also to um, Ariel uh, and Jeremy and Clint and Ari for the work that they're doing. So um, thank you all for doing this. Um, it's helping us uh, kind of look at the water. Um, and I think I'll stop there. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Yeah. Sorry, Amy. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. Um, shall I just jump in? Great. Um, and thanks so much for that characteristically generous and warm um, introduction to, to some of what you took from our paper and some of what we're trying to do. And, and also um, to all of the organizers, thanks so much for, uh, in, I, 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 as Dan said, I really admire the format. Um, I don't get to talk to tax law professors very often um, outside of Anne, and uh, I think all of us um, really um, value these opportunities to kind of get outside of our ordinary conversations, um, because in some sense, the siloing is a little bit what we're talking about in this paper, right? Um, and the need to sort of, in certain ways, step back and, as Anne said, see the sort of water in which we're swimming. And I think um, in, in many ways, this is um, precisely the kind of thing we hoped um, we would be able to do by writing the paper. The paper is obviously, you know, even uh, though it's long uh, <laughs> in some registers, you know, um, very um, much working at a 30,000 foot level and, and an invitation, I think, as we thought of it, for others to sort of see how well these ideas that we're describing about the 20th century synthesis and the movement of certain kind of neoliberal ideas into, um, to some extent, the academy, and but also in policy. And so this is a great chance for me to sort of get, get, to, get to hear your thoughts about that. Um, and, um, and Anne, I, I loved so many things that you said. And let me just sort of start, I guess, with the, with the first piece, and, and I'll offer just a, a few responses. Um, the constitutional law um, uh, and the sort of way that constitutional law is organized to, in some sense, defer to markets. I think um, is a really important sort of um, uh, feature for us to think about. It goes all the way back to, you know, I've been reading a fair amount of Hale recently, right? That law operates when it doesn't uh, intervene as well as when it does intervene. Um, and one, one can see the coercive power of law as much in the staying of the hand as in the, um, as in the intervention. Um, and so, so the fact that constitutional law treats as, um, you know, uh, areas that we shouldn't intervene with uh, intervene in, you know, the, the market, 
um, uh, having that feature so frequently, if you look through, say, anti-discrimination law and how it operates, um, that's one way to think about, and of course, the, the sort of deference to rational basis review for economic policy and also matters of class, right? That's obviously very much a part of what we're thinking about. I think there's another way to think about the constitutional law piece. Um, which comes out a little bit more in other things that Jed and I both have been writing and others in the sort of world of political economy, which is that constitutional law also, and the courts more broadly outside of constitutional law, and I'll end this with a kind of question for you about how whether this is featured this way in tax, I think also in certain subtle ways in this same sort of period of decades, reorganized um, some of how they talked about how markets worked and how the state worked and how whose subjects even are. And so some of what we were trying to trace um, was not merely the sort of deference to markets in the sense of like, oh, anti-discrimination law should stop where we shouldn't intervene too much in markets. And so if there's a bona fide occupational qualification, for example, you know, or disability has to be, um, you know, there's going to be some intervention in markets, but we shouldn't intervene too much. Um, um, but there's also this other, maybe more subtle way in which um, you know, politics through the language of public choice and rent seeking, for example, gets modeled as just about a bunch of trade-offs and that, that the logical thing to think about in um, when we're thinking about policy is, you know, concentrated interests and diffuse interests. All of us find that very powerful. I've used it very much in my own work. Um, and yet it does have the feature of modeling what happens in politics as precisely a kind of thing that we might not have talked about in that way in previous eras, right? Um, where we would have seen politics as a place where people debate what our interests are, in fact, and engage in um, acts of public-minded, um, uh, or, or in fact, ought to be accountable to the question about what the public needs and what we need as a community, right? As opposed to kind of a, 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 a you know, sort of a simple model of interest-based um, politicking, um, things like that, or markets just being presumed to be um, uh, to sort of uh, uh, clearing, right? Um, and and so we use the example of the First Amendment, obviously, in the paper. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is whether in other places, whether in tax jurisprudence or in tax policy, you see sort of similar shifts to that too, um, constitutionally, but also statutorily speaking. So do you see um, what I would, and we could get a little deeper in people, if people are interested into the sort of history of neoliberal thought, do you see the sort of um, uh, moves that we're talking about in your area, um, in both debates and scholarship and in policy and, and the courts, where there are um, uh, sort of uh, subtle shifts away from uh, thinking about politics as a kind of place of um, uh, the definition of interests and sort of um, debate among citizens to rent seeking and uh, sort of uh, navigating um, in, in certain ways. Um, well, let me, let me go on to the or, and markets as presumptively um, kind of clearing or presumptively um, the way first of all, like the market of ideas, right? Sort of um, uh, that kind of piece of it. So I'm curious, like sort of the degree to which those features of sort of changing our, our or, and, and even subjects. And I think in tax was very, um, I found very helpful. I did actually read the draft that you mentioned, Jeremy and Clint's paper. And I found very helpful looking at some of that paper and thinking about, I know very little about tax scholarship. Um, some of the way that maybe tax you know, perhaps it's always been, or perhaps it became more reorganized around people as preference satisfiers, right? That's what you are fundamentally. And so the questions in tax are, are about individual preference satisfaction um, as much as, or more so than they are about the collective establishing of, a, you know, um, uh, of in fact, what our preferences ought to be. And so the use and optimal tax theory of corn versus 
um, wheat, right, as the model of the consumer and it's corn versus wheat, as opposed to thinking about uh, EV vehicles versus SUVs. And of course, when we talk about EV and SUVs, everyone says, oh, it's externalities. And so also, we might be saying politics is a place where we establish what it is that we want, in part because in the process of individuals establishing their preferences, there's different orders of, of existence in some sense for ourselves. There's times when we're preference satisfiers, that's a market model. And there's times when we're establishing what it is that we think we ought to do, what our values are and how we live together. Politics conventionally would be a place where we express that. And so when we're deciding on tax policy, we might not just be trying to figure out what people's preferences are, but recognizing that preferences are endogenous, we're establishing preferences, we use politics as a different means than the market to sort of figure out what preferences we ought to value. So what do we, what, what do we value about our values? Um, on the, on the do we want to have constitutional law more engaged with these questions or not? It's a wonderful question. And I think one of the things very much worth grappling with is the whether or not um, you have to have courts as the mediator of the constitutional law questions or um, Willie Forbath and Joy Fishkin have a book coming out about constitutional political economy, um, which they've been working on for years and it's traversing this ground of how courts um, have encased um, certain kinds of uh, market power and um, privilege from Democrat from democratic sort of reorganization. And, um, and so, of course, on the one hand, one can say courts are always involved, you don't get to have them out. So, for example, um, if the courts see campaign finance law as um, something that um, in, impinges upon free corporate speech, because precisely of the way they're thinking about markets, when the state is for, how everybody operates, um, and then they strike down campaign finance law. Like that's not the court staying out of constitutional law or staying out of questions of wealth distribution. That's the court in. And you could, you could imagine how a reorientation of how you thought about equality and its importance, markets and how they operate, right? Um, wealth and, um, and how, and its implications for democracy could shift how the court would think about simply letting legislation alone, right? Deferring to democratic outcomes. Um, and so in some sense, we don't get to have the court out, the court is always in. And so um, that's a sort of one piece to think about. And of course it's in very much interpreting statutes as much as the constitution. Um, but, but another is that a change, and this is very much what Willie and, and Joey are trying to do in their book, that a change in the way we talk and to talk constitutionally about things like wealth distribution might be an important political move. And so while Anne, you're, it seems absolutely right that in many ways tax has avoided some of the, um, the problems that um, you know, some of the dynamics we're talking about have created in other subfields, but it also seems like there might be a connection between the retreat from constitutional language and the failures of politics to follow what tax scholars think ought to be done. Um, you know, and so now I think where it's inescapable that things like wealth distribution matter for the survival of our democracy, we are seeing new shifts in the kinds of taxes that we're willing to talk about. And so it's that maybe there's a different way that might be a more compatible way. I think both given our concerns about elite capture of institutions like courts and, um, and the work that you are all are very much doing to sort of elucidate how tax law could be much more egalitarian, that those might meet in a public and legislative politics of constitutionalism as opposed to necessarily a judicial review striking down 
um, to, to bring us a more, um, to litigate us towards a more equal future. Um, so I guess I wanna hold both of those ideas together. On the one hand, we have to confront these ideas in the courts because they're remaking the landscape, often in fact, striking down legislation. On the other, um, you don't have to rely upon them uh, uh, as the destination of your constitutional claims, um, but simply raising the level of these concerns to ones about the stakes of our, of our political order in our constitution might, might be helpful in addressing some of the political dynamics that I know you all think very much about. Um, okay, so um, I think um, I'll say a few more things about whether or not, so I, I love the comment, Anne, and I, I take very seriously the sort of point that tax has been a place where there's been, never been, and it's just true of, of certain other subfields too. I think labor law is never a field that was, you know, completely colonized by a sort of private law way of thinking about law and economics. And there's all kinds of reasons we could talk about. One, one thing that I think is kind of cool about tax is you were the people who were supposed to talk about distribution, even within law and economics, right? You were the author, the one authorized place, like you got to do it all. Um, and you know, my view is that that is not an in, that's not a neutral move. Um, I mean, and you all know this, right? That the idea of, of you know here's the market over here, and then here's redistribution over here is part of where the whole game the whole game is kind of set up at that point to make it quite difficult to do some of the things very, that very much drawing on political theory and so forth you might say you want to do with the tax system. Um, and so, so that piece seems like an important part of the story that you get to keep your political theory, but in a place that maybe actually, um, uh, uh, you know, and one thing we often sort of talk about in, in law and political economy circles is the sort of, dis what I call the distribution dodge, right? Like we'll do distribution later and it always goes over there and it can always be undone by the legislature if we do this over here. And, you know, it's not, not rocket science. Everybody knows this. We're just sort of putting it into this framework that, um, that uh, distribution at time one is gonna affect distribution at time two. And so uh, that isn't a neutral thing to be doing. And so in some sense, you've been given too much of the work, right? Is like, I think part of, um, but, and, but, but very much um, through public economics, I think, and through the role of things like diminishing marginal utility, you know, um, able to make claims on the broader, um, uh, both distributive and to some extent democratic and citizenship elements that tax ought to bear. That seems right, although I also wonder, um, and this is genuinely just a question, um, now do you really, is it, is, it, is it really that you avoid wealth maximization in a really thoroughgoing way? Because my own experience in many of the fields that I work in is that there's moments where everybody talks like a welfare maximizer and then, and then you start trying to calculate things and then you turn around and you figure out where am I gonna get my numbers and you get them from the market. And so, you know, it, one way I think I was thinking, in fact, reading the, the paper that um, Jeremy and Clint wrote was, when you start to ask about um, optimal tax and distortions, right? And you turn around and you say, is this gonna distort and what kind of activity is it gonna distort? How do you measure distortion? I would assume you measure it by looking at preferences as revealed in markets and sort of elasticities as revealed in markets. And so in some sense, there's a kind of laundering of the way preferences are exhibited in markets because that's where you get your inputs for calculations about what the elasticities are if we're gonna tax here or tax there. And you don't then go back and sort of say, well, diminishing marginal utility in the corn for people at this income level versus the corn for people at this income level. And we ought to be, you know, we got to undo the kind of um, way that, that, that people's ability to pay kind of is fed into a system that would be measuring, you know, um, you know uh, uh, let's say um, 
uh, elasticities or something like that, right? And so that's, I think, one of the very powerful things about, um, uh, about the efficiency framework is precisely that it offers us these empirical tools, like, you know, the way markets actually operate and reveal preferences and so forth, to give you inputs into something that then feels very tractable. And yet there's a, there's a I think, a risk that, that the tractability ends up um, substituting for sort of the ability to see all the way down into the models, we, what's this actually built upon? And are we maintaining our commitment to a, wel a welfare maximizing approach? Or are we by necessity, in some sense, bringing back in and, and revaluing uh, re re um, this through sort of wealth maximizing um, uh, models? Um, so, so that um, that's a kind of a question. And I, then I love the last piece, and Anna, I very much just want to um, agree with what you're suggesting, which is that in some sense, the kind of crises of the moment, and I hope that the, our paper's helpful in this, but the crises of the moment are asking all of us to think differently about simply what's the terrain of questions that we operate on and, and where might the questions that we should have been debating um, um, because they're the, they're the, they're not the, the small marginal thing that we can get traction on, but the big question for our democracy, right? Um, you know, but should we be debating reparations instead of talking about the, you know, the, the small difference between structuring the tax this way or structuring the tax that way? Um, or, um, or, or should we be, um, uh, revisiting, you know, questions about the pre-distributive um, dimensions of the way property is organized, as opposed to, um, you know, a sort of uh, debating the marginal, you know, impact of this or that change that is um, uh, maybe more uh, easier to talk about. And I, this is very much, I think, uh, something that in all fields we're trying to think about today. Um, and I, I, I love um, the chance to talk to you about sort of how we might. Um, just re not even in some sense the work may be there, but 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 framing the questions somewhat differently and reorienting the terrain of debate um, is this this move better for distribution or this move better for distribution or equality um, uh, uh, that that itself might be part of what we as scholars want to be doing. I'll stop there and and thanks again so much for um, joining me and talking about this. Well, thank you so much uh, to Anne and Amy. This discussion has already been really fascinating. Um, the paper is very pr provocative. Um, at the risk of making it even more complicated, I actually want to talk about international. So, you know, we have a lot of people on this, um, you know, we're, we're lucky we have a, a nice international audience here. And, you know, I want to just talk about some of these ideas and how they play out uh, in international tax. So, you know, Amy, your paper is all about how legal academia has used the appeal of efficiency, right? It's, new, it's apparent neutrality to kind of seal off, to encase the status quo distribution against criticism, sounding inequality, politics, democracy. Um, you know, and the authors of this tax paper that's responsive to your paper, right? Uh, Jerry, Jeremy Barefriend et al., um, you know, I'll leave it to them to make their points. There, some of them are here today, um, but one of their points is that uh, you know, and, and Anne made this point too. You know, tax is always as far back as Adam Smith, right? Emphasized pluralistic values, equity in terms of ability to pay, not willingness to pay, um, efficiency and administrability. And you know, Clint might want us to add democracy or accountability to that, but these values have always been plural um, when it comes to domestic tax, and we can argue, you know, maybe there's been too much focus on efficiency and too little on equity, but a place where equity gets short shrift is international, 
Okay, so there, there, there's some work on, you know, what we call internation uh, equity and Silly's work on like the, re the regressive shift in tax treaties is well known. But the topic, the topic just hasn't received as much attention in international as domestic tax. Um, and there's often this hand-waving excuse of that's a domestic is issue. This would be your distribution dodge, right? Like you have to do that stuff at the national level. Um, so the question gets just pushed down. You know, part of this is there's no polity internationally to decide the issues. We can't do it democratically. Um, but, you know, just because there's no polity doesn't mean there's no politics. We see lots of politics and fighting over the distribution of tax. Um, and this is, you know, entitlement to tax, how it's distributed among states, right? Um, so, you know, what you have in international is a, a real focus on efficiency and administrability. You know, these issues that seem technocratic, like if you just had a calculator and a pad and a pencil, you could, you could figure it out. Um, now there's, you know, caveats that have to be made for that claim. One of which is that, you know, even the efficiency concepts that we use in international tax you know, have welfare conceptions embedded in them. So, you know, you won't know our jargon, but, you know, for people on the call, right, you know, everyone now is thinking about capital export neutrality and capital import neutrality. These are sort of our received um, welfare benchmarks. And interestingly, the, the leading concept pursued by the United States, at least in terms of, you know, documents put out by the Treasury Department is capital export neutrality, which has as a, a as its goal, the pursuit of worldwide welfare. Um, and no less prominent a scholar than Michael Gratz, your longtime colleague at Yale, has taken the government to task for that, asking, you know, why should it be the business of the United States to pursue worldwide welfare rather than national welfare? But, you know, interestingly, right, CEN is at bottom a cosmopolitan approach. Now, of course, everyone is on this call, you know, is scoffing at the idea that the United States ever, ever actually pursues anything other than national self-interest in the in the international arena for for tax um you know but this brings me to a question that's it, it's not for you amy it's unfair <laughs> to you but but for the group right so uh, you know how does this new this concept of value creation that we're seeing in international tax fare on the type of criticism that amy and her co-authors are are advancing here so you know just to fill you in amy um you know international tax has a at its core, this really difficult question, which is, you know, which country gets what? Who gets to tax the profits of integrated multinational companies that are engaged in business in lots of different countries? And you know, we have we have rules for that. You know, the 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 the, the goal is that not more than one country should tax mm -hmm. the income, and you got so you got to split it up. Um, and, you know, the problem is that firms have traditionally had a lot of choice. Uh, what's thought to be too much choice, right? About where, and in some cases, even whether to declare their profits. So there's a feeling that the old rules just, you know, the, we call them the transfer pricing rules, that they, they um, were relying too much on what the company said was happening. So if the company, you know, one part of the company wrote a contract with another part of the country, company that assigned risks and responsibilities, then the tax, tax systems of the world would look at that and, and sort of believe it. Right, and, and allocate the income accordingly. And so, you know, several years ago, OECD countries got together and started talking about some, a different way of, of assigning the income, which was value creation. Rather than taking the contract at face value, uh, tax should be paid where value is created. 
Um, and then this concept ended up morphing into not just a rule for transfer pricing, a rule for splitting up income among the parts of companies, but rather as a rule, a sort of a slogan for how income should be divvied up among countries uh, generally, okay? So then you have lots of academic papers about value creation. Um, you know, whole books have now been written about value creation. A, a huge amount of academic energy has been poured into this, not, you know, not to mention the energy that's been poured in by officials in the in finance ministries. Um, you know, so my question, un unfair as opposed to you, Amy, but, you know, something for the group to think about, um, but very much provoked by your, your paper, right, and in, in the spirit of interrogation of unseen motives, is whether value creation is a tool of encasement or whether it's a chisel, chisel to remove encasement. So just as a sketch, right? So here's the argument that it's a tool of encasement. Um, so as wielded by each country, value creation is just a stocking horse for that country's interests, but it has the patina of credibility, right? Uh, it's similar to how Amy and her co-authors describe efficiency being used in the domestic, uh, you know, the US legal literature. How could you possibly want a mismatch between tax and value creation? So it seems neutral. If I can make a persuasive argument that value was created in state X, then state X should be entitled to tax that value and never mind the distributive effects and, and, and extra never mind, right? The initial distribution that put the country in the position to have contributed to the value in that way in the first place, right? And then the argument against the argument that it's chiseling away at the old, you know, some kind of older distribution is. You know, it's a new invention. You can pour into it what you want, including new distributive arguments. So whereas old paradigms rely too much on contracts and too much on physical and intellectual property and where they were, um, now maybe we look more to labor. Now we look to consumers, maybe even to digital users uh, of social you know, media um, products. Um, and so because it's an empty concept, maybe not entirely, but you know, it, it, it's un, undefined, um, then it can be a tool for challenging the status quo. Um, you know, what's interesting is that both arguments for stasis and change are made in terms of economics, right? Mm -hmm. So value creation sounds vaguely economic. People have certainly interpreted it in that, it, it in that vein, right? So the fact that we're even arguing about value creation, right? Um, it, it means that we've seeded the terrain maybe, right? Um, uh, and we're, we're not talking about distributive justice directly. Um, so I just toss that out for the international people as sort of an idea to um, consider. Now I know um, that Silly wants to make a remark as well before we open up the queue. And remember, just use the raise hand function. So thanks Ruth, uh, uh, and uh, not surprisingly maybe, I, I too went to the international level. But, but first I wanted to thank you uh, Anne for, for your presentation and, and thanks even more for uh, the selection of, of this particular paper uh, for a series. And thank you Amy for your uh, uh, comment. Um, it's, it's probably no surprise that I loved the, the, the paper uh, and that, that I find it both uh, important and timely. Um, and the, the ideas of, of shifting legal thinking and, and for me, legal text theory from efficiency to power, from neutrality to, to equality, from anti-politics to democracy are uh, imperative and, and provide us with, with a particularly important alternative as a focal point for, to guide us uh, through our uh, legal uh, thinking. 
And all three moves that you describe in the paper, the, the, the power move, the equality move, and the democracy move, are critically important in, in, in the era of tax law, of course. Um, it is critical that tax law treats us all as, as equal members in a political community. And, and there are many examples for that uh, on the domestic front. Uh, so so I, I read the article in, in the tax contact as a call for uh, tax analysis uh, that treats individuals with equal respect and, and concern, that focuses on alleviating power gaps and that stresses our roles as members in the political community rather than uh, atomistic consumers of goods and services that are the object of, of tax law. Uh, now, this obviously puts a lot of pressure uh, on the state and particularly on the political democratic process as a way to, to secure a thriving society and as a way to, to prevent inequality and to alleviate power imbalances and, and to protect the, the weaker segments of society. Um, but if we care, uh, if what we care about is people and particularly the weakest among them, and if we think power imbalances and inequality are a problem, as, as I do, uh, we must draw attention to the, to the global um, level. And, and, and I think we must consider how the global level affects not only the individuals, but states themselves. And, and what happens on, on the global front is that the state itself becomes a market actor. The state itself is competing with other states for resources as well as for residents. And, and the forces of the global market, forces of tax competition, undermine states' ability to independently pursue their policy goals. And in particular, undermine their ability to use taxes for redistribution. Now, states have basically two options uh, to fight back against this uh, uh, tax competition effect of the, of the global sphere. They can uh, either uh, insist on their coercive power by, by putting barriers on the inflow and outflow of, of capital, of residents, and of resources. And by doing that, they take the risk of leveling down the, the domestic economies. Or states could opt, as they have in, in previous years, uh, to cooperate with other states in an, in an effort to harmonize the, the rules in order to create more equitable uh, regimes. The problem is that both um, these um, um, both these options actually aggravate, aggravate rifts uh, um, between poor and rich states. And importantly, between the weakest of the weak, between the, the poor in developing countries and other groups. And the reason is that restrictions on cross-border movement and harmonization of tax rules across national borders are both actual privileges that cater to the needs of rich countries that can afford the trade-off between a more prosperous economy and a more equitable society. So sure, if, if the US uh, decides to, to put its uh, foot down and, and insist on some justice-promoting policies, taxpayers may not be all that quick to leave. And the size of the US economy can probably afford to, to lose or, or the loss of certain amounts of, of uh, resources. In other words, the, the US market uh, or the US market power provides the US with some leeway in pursuing justice. But the poor country 
may not be able to, to afford this uh, uh, privilege of, of allowing for redistribution. So similarly, when the OECD sets cooperative agenda for international taxation, or when the uh, G7 countries get together to increase tax levels and allocate taxing uh, uh, rights, they tend to prefer their own needs rather than those of developing countries. So instead of the, the domestic uh, power gaps that we try to fix, what we find is actually intonation power gaps. And one of the key problems that the, the global, um, uh, with the global arena is of course the democratic deficit at the global level. So global mechanisms of governance are far from the ideal picture of accountable and, and responsive institutions that, that we may imagine uh, when we trust uh, democracy as a, as a solution for the current uh, power gaps. And when political institutions are deficient as they are on the global level, they cannot be the solution to, to what we are trying to target. Now, obviously the market too is, is deficient um, just as, uh, as uh, the, the political institutions and, and just like your, your uh, article Amy so eloquently demonstrates. So, so the truth of the matter is that both institutions, both the market and political governance are in reality far from the ideal depiction uh, that we kind of uh, put on them. And, and to be honest, it is unclear, at least for me, how to actually fix them. So I, I guess the, the bottom line of what I'm trying to say is that we should keep our eye on the target. And the target being you know, human flourishing, reducing power in, uh, imbalances, mitigating inequalities. And the, the, the kind of solution that you, we use to this be, being a market solution or a political solution shouldn't matter that much. You know, we should use whatever mechanism that best fits our goal. And this could be either a market mechanism, could be a, a political mechanism, could be a hybrid of both which is probably my preferable uh, reply. In other words, whatever fits the purpose. Okay, so Amy, I don't know if you wanna respond to that uh, or should I go to the queue or Anne? Any? Um, I mean, those were wonderful comments. I know there's a, there's a number of folks on the queue. So um, I think maybe, we'll, maybe we should just go to the queue and then I'll get a chance to Add some other thoughts. Sure, and then you know, uh, and please also feel free to to respond if you wish. Um, so, Linda, Linda Sujin. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for putting this together. This is really interesting conversation and a, a really great paper. Um, I want to say three quick things, and I, I promise I'll be quick because the queue is long. Um, one about equity, one about efficiency, and one about constitutional abdication and tax. Um, so the first about equity, and I think that this relates to what Celie was just talking about, um, but I think that in tax, we often think of, um, of equity in terms of some very lean, narrow version of economic fairness. And um, you know, and I think that what we need to do in tax is we need to think beyond just the financial. And so, um, you know, and so I know that um, I know that Clint has um, has developed this idea 
you know, that was some time ago when I started talking about democratic fairness and taxation as being an independent norm um, that really connects to the things that Celia is talking about, to the dignity of the person and equal re respect and concern. And there are ways in which looking solely at financial distribution does not get at this notion of equity. And so I think that that we need to be thinking about that in, in, in when we're talking about equity and taxation. So that's the equity piece. The second piece about efficiency, and this goes back to what Anne was talking about as wealth maximization. And I, I totally agree with Anne that we don't generally think in terms of wealth maximization when we're talking um, in taxation, but we're almost obsessed with waste. Right. And just when you say waste, right, like that's value laden waste. Oh, my God, we don't want waste. We got to get rid of waste. Right. And so but come on, like maybe waste is OK. Why are we so obsessed with waste? And so I think that that's another way in which the way that we talk about efficiency and taxation is incredibly narrow. It's not narrow in the wealth maximization way, but it's narrow in this other way. And so, you know, so how do we how do we see waste and that we haven't really investigated, I think, why why we think waste is is such a bad thing and that we should be avoiding dead weight loss um, because you know that's really the bad thing. So um, you know I think that we as tax people we've been patting ourselves on the back for a long time saying we have always known that economics is a value just like other values and we're gonna weigh it with other values. But I think that we could actually um, have have a wider view of of what we're talking about when we talk about economics. And just the last thing I, I want to say is about con law abdication and tax, you know, and, and this is something that I've been writing on pretty much for my whole career um, about constitutional law and taxation. And, and I just really want to point out that it's not just that um, that the con law side has sort of abdicated um, in the area of tax. It's actually worse than that, right? Um, and like 10 years ago, I wrote a paper that I called the great and mighty tax law. And it was basically the idea that if you just stick something in as a tax provision, as a tax expenditure, then that essentially protects it from um, from any cons kind of constitutional scrutiny, because it's very easy for the legal analysis to see tax expenditures as an absence of anything, right? It's not taxing. And so therefore, it's not even treated as legally important. And I see this actually as tremendously dangerous. Um, and the more and more that we use the tax law, um, one of my colleagues recently um, who was in the poverty law area said to me when the child tax credit um, was announced, he was like, oh, Linda, it seems like your area has swallowed mine up, right? So the idea being, right, that we can really protect anything that we want from constitutional scrutiny by designing it as a tax expenditure, you know? And I think that that's, you know, that that's even maybe more, Amy, than the way that you were thinking about this protected sphere, because that gives the tax law the ability to really reach into all other areas of the law and to make provisions beyond 
constitutional review. So Amy and Anne, if it's okay with you, I'll collect some more questions and maybe, okay, great. So um, John Bella, thanks Linda. Oh, hi, hi everyone. Um, I've got um, two questions. So uh, the first one um, regards whether this is actually about um, US legal scholarship rather than legal scholarship in, in, in other countries too. And um, so I was thinking about this because when I read the paper, which I, I really enjoyed, I, I, um, and I thank Celia and Ruth for this because I, um, I'm guilty of not reading many non-tax papers. But you know, when I read this, the 20th century synthesis makes up the air we breathe, and it is the only disciplinary atmosphere younger scholars and lawyers have known. I mean, that, that definitely wasn't my experience um, studying law in continental Europe and in England. So um, it would be interesting to think, okay, is this a particularly US phenomenon or is it, um, if, if it is, then what does it tell us about the relationship between this issue and the problems we identify if we see the same problems in other countries too? So maybe that's something worth thinking about. And the second point, goes, um, I, I think I agree with, with Anne on, on, um, on the issue of efficiency and how we see it in tax law. So I must say, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I haven't come across an economist who would say, you know, when we think about tax policy, all we need to think about is efficiency. I mean, they would say, you know, if that were the case, we would have lumped some taxes and all go home. We know how to, you know, how to design efficient taxes, but you know, all the economists I've, I've met in our areas would say efficiency is an important issue to think about. Yeah, but it's just one of a number of issues and um, we have efficiency, we have administration, we have fairness and we have other considerations. So, um, you know, with, with that in mind, I'm not that concerned with um, the nefarious influence of uh, economists and their concept of efficiency in our work. Thanks. Andrew, Andrew Hayashi. Sure, thanks. Um, so I just want to start with a compliment and say it's beautifully and persuasively written, which I think is especially remarkable given that you had a number of authors on this piece. So to like have one voice is, you know, no small thing. So I have a question that's kind of related to something Silly said and, and maybe Linda as well, and, and then sort of a funny request. So so uh, near, it's actually near the end of the paper where you, you, you describe your basic commitment to democracy, you say, and that I guess that surprised me just a bit given what seemed like a primarily sort of egalitarian motivation, that that was really the value that, uh, that you thought um, legal scholars needed to be attentive to. And I just wondered what you thought, if you could say a little bit more about what you think the relationship between the two is, because there's lots of ways that democratic politics obviously could play out once you bring these distributional decisions about the allocation of power above board. So tax scholars always are, are have, are always vexed and shake their fists at, at the fact that nobody likes the estate or inheritance or inheritance taxes. Why don't they understand that this is they're not going to pay it? It's good for them. It's distributively just. Um, you know why is that? But no matter how you ask the question, um, they're unpopular. Zach Lisko has a paper about how people don't people do not want to tax unrealized income. It's unfair. Uh, why why is that? My own experience is, no matter how hard I try, I cannot shake my Fed tax students sort of intuitive entitlement to their pre-tax income. I can talk about the role of the government till I'm blue in the face. These are people who are going to be lawyers and be paid because of, of the law itself. And, uh, and it, the, the intuitive appeal is just very resilient. Um, 
I wonder, Linda asks, why are we so fixated on waste as legal, as tax scholars? I don't know. A lot of people maybe care about waste. And when we, when we, when we involve more people in the process of tax policy, we might find they care about waste even more than, than we do. So anyway, I just kind of wondering if it's, you know, is democracy important as an expression? You want equal participation, so democratic participation is an expression of egalitarianism, or is it instrumental or Maybe that's a little bit beyond the scope, but I, th I felt that thrust was so much about egalitarianism and then, and then the democracy, I wasn't quite sure how important that was. So the funny request is, and this has to do with the politics as well, you know, I think it's really fascinating to be observing this sort of deliberate and ambitious attempt to create a movement right now. I think that's really, really exciting. I wondered, and hear me out, um, if you've considered a conference with some of sort of these conservative folks on the right, I'm thinking, like Patrick Deneen um, at Notre Dame, Orrin Cass, who's sort of a public policy guy. He has his own think tank called American Compass. Or maybe, you know, even somebody like, I don't know if Adrian Vermeule fits in that category or not. And so just what I'm observing as I'm reading the story, and people have expressed this in different ways, right? Is, you know, you're very focused on neoliberalism. They want to get off the liberalism train sort of before it leaves the station, some of them. They see neoliberalism as, I think, a natural or inevitable expression of, of liberalism. You know, you're, maybe there's differences, this basic commitment to democracy you have, they may not share, I'm not really sure. But there are a lot of striking similarities that I think are more than superficial. You know, they're drawing on the work, you're both drawing on the work of people like Karl Polanyi, the relationship between markets and politics and law, uh, how the failure to think about those things in the right sort of hierarchy cashes out in the kind of capitalism we have, inequality, environmental degradation, you all kind of favoring unions, local associations as alternative sites of, of power. Um, I, I appreciate that gathering that group together could be awkward. <laughs> uh, but intellectually, I just, I would be fascinated to see those differences worked out. Um, and it would also bring a whole lot of visibility, uh, I think, to the, to, to the project as well. Um, and I would just say, you know, Suresh Nadu has this really nice review in the Boston Review of Orrin Cass's book about industrial policy and a worker-centered economy that I think is really, is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, probably where you end up diverging is the kinds of politics you think uh, um, um, will emerge. But uh, I, I think bringing, you know, having that conversation would be, would be really illuminating. So it's a funny request, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> Ruth, I think maybe should we pause for a minute because there's so many awesome questions on the table now, um, and I, I'm happy to jump in and, and then you know also others to react to them. Um, so first of all, thank you. Uh, what a wonderful series of questions. I think you know. Let me start. I guess we'll maybe try to talk a little bit in reverse order. Um, Andrew on the um, Orin Casses of the world. Um, so there. So I think one thing that. Um, we're obviously doing in this paper is kind of running together a descriptive and a normative project. But I think it's important to sort of um, to say that um, one can do political economy analysis with a different normative orientation. And I think part of what you're describing is in fact, you know, the, the proof in the world <laughs> that there are um, fundamental sort of openings in the sort of neoliberal consensus. And, uh, you know, and you can go back to Polanyi and say, you know, like the, after the gold standard um, and the kind of collapse of 
um, uh, of a certain kind of, you know, stability of market society, you get fascism or you get socialism. And that was his view and they got fascism. Um, and I think um, that, that, that there's very much an attempt in certain kind of corners of the Republican Party to sort of reopen the question of the sort of neoliberal consensus, exactly that, you know, it's, it's um, Marco Rubio and Lauren Cass and, you know, and, and I have actually been at a meeting kind of like what you described, but the interesting thing was it had to be secret and it wasn't because of us, <laughs> it was because of them that it had to be secret. Um, so they wouldn't do it publicly. Um, but, um, uh, but, but I think, um, I think what you're very much right that like there is going to be, I think this, um, and there's potential so around which values ought we reorient if we say the market isn't going to, we're just not going to allocate political decision-making to the market. And of course, I have great differences with some of them. You know, I'm a feminist. Um, Warren Cass is, ob objects to the, the kind of decline of the white male um, kind of, uh, you know, factory or the, 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 the family wage, things like that, right? And so I do think, though, that there's a certain kind of, um, uh, there's certain kinds of intersections about, you know, the sort of um, the failures of a world in which um, other kinds of values are denigrated as compared to um, values of kind of satisfying consumer preferences. And so, um, you know, not so surprisingly, a number of the folks that you describe in that mix are, are religious, actually, and have a commitment to either Catholicism or Mormonism or other forms of traditions that would elevate, in fact, other values over the market. Um, that also, I would say, I guess, sort of, um, I'm not sure that that way of thinking has much future in the party <laughs> um, that it is um, organized within. And, and in part, you know, you look at the attacks on Facebook and so forth, it seems to be the only mega monopoly that certain kinds of uh, conservative politicians are going after. So I'm not sure that it's going to really transform the party. But, um, but I do think the debate's super interesting and, and important. And in some ways, um, uh, simply shifting the terrain of like which values ought we be prioritizing if we're going to sort of shift away from the the sort of idea of the neoliberal market settling this for us in this kind of neutral terrain of consumer preferences or something like that um, is exactly a good debate to have and I would be interested in having it with people like Orrin Cass. Um, so um, democracy versus equality. I mean, I think it's a very it's a very important and um, and deep question. Um, the I guess the way that I think about it, and I think I, my co-authors share this with me, is that democracy is a political order based upon the value of equality. And so when you're looking for alternatives to markets, which tend to uh, prioritize according to people's ability to pay um, and pre-existing distributions that are encoded in law and that bear, bear all of the forms of subjugation that our history has encoded into our law, um, that politics is a, a, as a place and democracy as a place where we are all um, stand as equals is an appealing alternative to that. Now, um, and so I, I'm not sure that, of course, you, in any particular moment, you could say, well, the, you know, the people don't like, you know, like, well, from whatever we can tell, like, I don't know, opinion polling or for what they vote for, the people don't like this egalitarian thing. But fundamentally, I think there's a way in which democracy is, is, is precisely organized around a kind of egalitarianism that um, allows us to put both equality and democracy in, in the sort of story about the reorientation that we're looking for. And it doesn't answer the enormously good questions about what the hell democracy even really is and how do you know what it is that people want. And um, there's a, um, there's a, I think, um, there's a maybe a, a piece of this though too that I sh maybe didn't come out so much in our conversation, but I hope comes out in the paper, which is that we have the sense 
um, that a sort of a bet on using sort of elites or technocratic institutions or, you know, whether that's courts or let's all just get together at the central bank and figure it out, or let's all just get together in the law professor world and figure it out and we'll engineer equality into our system, have not been a successful way to actually get to things um, that look more radically egalitarian. In fact, periods in, in our history, and this is true, I think, in the US as well as beyond, where we've gotten really egalitarian moves, very substantial shifts in the tax code, very are periods of enormous social conflict, uh, where there are there are there are powerful forces at work that are not elites organizing an argument that sidesteps the sort of objections of you know the voters because they don't really understand or they don't really like. Um, now I, I you know um, so so I think the bet and this is the part of the sort of shift from anti politics to a risky bet on democracy is that you need to think about. Um, uh, and, and need to be open to a kind of democratic um, uh, and, and power building relationship to what legal change and progressive legal change really looks like. And it's a question I have for you all is like, what does power building look like in tax? <laughs> How do you think about, you know, whether or not um, uh, the, the moves that you're making inside of tax actually build the power of people to change, you know, the tax, assuming we're not going to, you know, go towards um, uh, or, or imagine more radically sort of egalitarian change coming through violent means or truly you know, grave social dislocation. One alternative to that is sort of the idea of non-reformist reforms where you build power, not just you do a good thing because you made the tax code more egalitarian, but you build power so that in this iterative struggle of, over the shape of our political economy, the forces uh, that are tend to be more egalitarian um, will actually um, tend to prevail. So that's a sort of long-winded answer. And I think in some ways it runs into the questions that um, that um, Ruth and Silly asked at the beginning about internationalism. And I think one of the difficulties of framing the alternative through trying to sort of pull, put together equality and democracy is precisely the question of the transnational. It doesn't, there, you know, I think my own work has been transnational and to, to, to a large extent. And some of the, the, to some extent, there's not attention, right? In part, what, what, what we might do and what you both beautifully did, I think, is diagnose the way that transnational legal orders are in fact used to encase power um, or encase um, uh, existing distributions from redistributive demands. And, um, and that is um, very much sort of part of my work on the TRIPS agreement and the kind of global trading order. I hear from you that there's very rich work in international tax. And I assume like lots of the different levers that are being pulled in international tax and organized um, uh, uh, actually have a similar, one could build a similar critique around that these are not sort of neutral forms, but this is in fact that, um, and the idea of sort of neoliberalism is like, let's tear down the state and deregulate. In fact, no, particularly when you looked at it, like internationally, you see that that those with capital very much want state borders and they want state borders because they want to be able to move around them. And in fact, being the threat to leave is precisely one way that you discipline democratic publics from taking your stuff. And so that's exactly what happens. And tax law, like international trade law, is, is probably organized to facilitate that in part because, and this is where we get into the difficulty. It's not surprising in a way because it's a product of the same kind of elite um, technocratic domain. It's very hard to get beyond that. Right, that the field of international tax, like the field of international trade, is very heavily sort of 
technocratically oriented. And even though there's lots of good people within it, there are, there, there's a few spaces where a kind of um, transformative power that would, would demand more egalitarianism can be expressed. So what's the alternative to that? I mean, historically, I've thought about global social movements as the functional alternative to a democratic um, sort of structure transnationally that can actually give voice to more democratic or egalitarian aims. But of course, there, you know, I, I've run aground the problem that is obviously there, which is the ability to mobilize around some of these highly complex issues um, and the resources and so forth are very limited. And so we do run aground, I think, very fundamental problems as we start to think beyond borders, not necessarily um, only because the, the sort of emphasis on democracy might require us to think nationally. I mean, I think many definitions of democracy would say that democracy is the ability to have an influence over politically the things that influence you. That's obviously not a domestic story anymore. Um, only in the United States, I think, could we imagine that you know we can deal with stuff in the United States. Um, everybody else knows that that's a, that's a fundamentally transnational enterprise to try to affect the things that influence you. Um, so, um, and, and Linda, I loved some of your comments about moving beyond the financial. I think one way that um, we are also very much trying to, to, to do that in our own thinking, and I'm thinking here of, you know, the way that certain kinds of things in tax are encoded as what's work and what's income, and the sort of way that care work is probably left out of all kinds of things in tax. Um, that are not just count, they're just not counted as financial because they aren't actually encoded as work or productive in the way that the economy is organized. And so they don't earn you credits toward your social security and they don't, right? So, so um, I think that's one dimension of how to bring, let's say, feminist analysis into the account of um, what's, what's like, so how to mark in a way this unmarked space of the financial. Um, uh, but I'd love to hear about other ideas about how to do that. And I think I should stop because there's lots more questions and I'm sure my, my co-panelists may have other things they wanna add. So Anne, should we collect the last couple of questions or? Yeah, let's, wanna... let's hear yeah. from other people. I, I have no particular need to speak. This is a great conversation. Uh, Ari. Uh, thanks so much to everyone. And particularly thanks to Silly and Ruth for creating this really important forum. And of course, to Amy and Anne for um, launching these conversations that need to, need to be undertaken. And, um, I have a question, but first I can't help but thinking about Amy's challenge right now, this question of how do you build power in tax, and it's a really challenging question, and my initial thought is just this work of bringing views that were maybe thought of as, you know, departures from the standard model or exotic, but really normalizing and bringing to the center of tax thought and scholarship this range of perspectives that uh, frankly, our country critically needs, um, but you know that that's a that's a hard project, and um, I'm, this all, this is also all really helpful for our paper. And I just made a SSRN link, so I will post the link to an early draft if anybody's interested. And I know Ariel wanted to be here as well, so we will give her a full report. Um, so I just wanted to tee up this question that's in the background of your of, of the LPE pro, uh, framework project, and then also it's something that we have struggled with in our paper, and it's something that I don't necessarily expect a clear or simple answer on, but it's this fundamental question of what are people's views on the role of tax in our structural challenges and possible solutions, 
as the situs for redistribution. And of course, there's been a lot of recent literature on this recently. And in tax, it's so easy to fall under the spell of tax exceptionalism. You know, of course, it's the most uh, directly and powerful means to correct these distorted market outcomes. And as Anna said, there are these robust connections to theories of distributive justice. And practically, there's a lot of room or slack within the tax system to achieve really substantial, even radical redistribution while still taking care of the economy. Um, but of course, we haven't really seen this motion, this movement in the policy arena, and even in uh, a lot of tax scholarship, despite this radical potential. So just at the most general level, do we think in tax that we're just doing it wrong and there are ways that we can internally be rethinking the role of the tax system to achieve this redistributive potential, maybe through the wider lens that LPE provides? Um, and there really, you know, feels to me like there's this real risk, on the other hand, of tax advocated, uh, abdicating this role. Um, on the other hand, is it a fundamental mistake to be thinking about focusing on tax as the redistributive tool. And as soon as we think about tax as this you know, exceptional or special instrument for redistribution, are we to a degree constraining or predicting the outcome? And maybe really for tax, what we should be doing is accepting and even embracing the limitations of tax as the situs for redistribution. And as we said, maybe it really is doing too much work here for all the reasons that we've discussed. So that I see that as kind of a, a basic tension that I struggle with and I don't have a simple answer to. I'll just say one thing in response to that, which is one of the things I came in wondering whether anyone would, would, would um, raise is kind of MMT and new theories about the way spending and taxation can be disassociated. And so just to sort of, you know, I think there is a, there, there, there's some, that, that has some, Without going full MMT, one could just simply look at what happened in the in the COVID moment and the dissociate the sort of may, may it be important to actually break the relationship between tax and distribution precisely because there are other techniques for funding um, all kinds of important programs that if you if you suture them to tax and you say well you know great you know um, health insurance is redistributive and so we got to raise the taxes like you're going to end up with a political dilemma that maybe you don't need to have. Anne, did you want to add? And I don't think we're going to have time for another question. So, if you wanted to make any last remarks, Anne. No, I'll I'll let Amy Amy or you or Tilly have the last yeah. word. But thank you again. So, Amy, oh, are, are we going to cut Jeremy off then? Because maybe I'd like to give Jeremy the last word. I think he was the last word. Thank you. Uh, I mean. I, uh, I just only to say thank you all for this phenomenal forum. It really is fantastic, and uh, the way you've challenged tax exceptionalism is so helpful to tax itself. I know in my work on the omission of race and ethnicity from federal tax data, tax has been so far behind on race and our status quo is so behind other fields, but it also seems like tax exceptionalism has sort of enabled some bad behavior in other fields, right? This idea of bracketing off distribution is our problem and not their problem. And so it's just been so fruitful to see all the work that's gonna come out of this conversation. Thank you. Excellent. Well, wow, I mean, what, what a way to end the first uh, year of the Oxford-Virginia Legal Dialogues. This, this discussion was totally fascinating. Um, thank you both so much for coming. Thank you to everyone who came. 
Um, and we wish we had a little more time. I'm going to let um, Silly say a couple of things. No, I'd like to say thank you to everyone and uh, have a good night and a good weekend. That's all. Thanks. <laughs> and we will be doing this again next year. So watch your inboxes and Twitter. So thank you, everyone. Thanks so much for having me.